Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. How to Grow Your Church. This is episode 98 of En Route. Welcome to En Route, the podcast that is at the intersection of church and Maine. This is a podcast on religion and public affairs. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Um, sorry for the long delay. Um, it has been a long time between um, now and new, uh, new material. Um, it's a combination of it's kind of a busy season, um, trying to find guests, but I'm also um, being the pastor of a church that is living the move. We are actually in the process of moving, and um, that is not an easy task. And I'll probably share a little bit more about that in um, in a little bit, in a little while. So actually, though, that there is something related to that, because, you know, the church that I serve, which is in um, the suburban Twin Cities, is a lot like a lot of congregations these days, especially within mainline Protestantism. It's a congregation that was once filled with members, lots of people over the years, and then over decades, years and decades, it's declined. And, um, you know, that puts you at a point where you have to kind of figure out what are you going to do? Um, And people, of course, start to wonder, even a pastor, can the congregation survive or is it time to, to hang it up? If you've been following this podcast, back in February, I was blessed to have um, Reverend Tracy Barno on the podcast. Uh, Tracy is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, and she has um, made it her mission. It's it's part of her ministry to help congregations grow, and she does that by using uh, time tested and very and simple methods that um, can help any congregation. Um, kind of redefine itself, find its mission again. Um, I had her actually, like I said, back on on the podcast in February, and there was just a a ton of technical difficulties that really made it difficult. And so we had to have kind of a shortened, shortened interview. And I promised her back then that we were going to have her back for a longer interview. And that is this interview. So, um, Actually, if you did not hear the February interview, um, please do listen to it. The link's in the show notes. Um, and um, especially if you're a congregation that is wondering if you're going to survive, and or maybe you've even thought that maybe you are going to close or that you've made a decision to close, um, 
listen to this podcast, um, listen to, to the February episode and listen to this one. Um, Cause I think it will be important that you hear that. I will be back to talk a little bit more at the end of the podcast, but for now, let's listen to Tracy. Tracy, I am glad to have you back. I'm glad that it's not the kind of uh, basically cavalcade of errors that it was the last time we were on a few months ago. Um, and I did want to have you back because it was kind of a shortened interview. So um, welcome. Well, I'm really glad to be back. And you know, I know you're really concerned about the technical difficulties last time, but really it didn't bother me at all. I'm just glad to have another chance to talk to you regardless. Great, great. Well, part of the, the, the thing that I wanted to talk to you today is a little bit hmm, selfish on my part, but I think it's also something I feel probably churches, a lot of churches are, are questioning and dealing with, especially in light of um, kind of the post-pandemic church and everything. Um, you have a lot of churches that basically are declining, and churches that are, especially after the, they've reopened, have lost members. And I think there's a lot of people trying to wonder, what, what do you do? And, and some people are even to the point of thinking, well, maybe it's time for us to just end our ministry. Mm-hmm. And knowing you and, and have been reading um, a lot of your material, I know that you would tend to have a different approach to that, how would you, especially looking at, at post-pandemic churches, what message can you give them that it's not necessarily the end of the story? Well, um, I would go back to the difference between the American definition of a church versus the biblical definition of a church. Um, American definition of a church is a big fancy building that's worth lots of money that you are actively maintaining because you have so much money coming in that you can do that. Um, You have lots of people and young families with small children that you know are just going to be there for the rest of their lives. So you don't have to worry about decline and um, everything is financially viable. That is how we define church in the United States. And there, you know, then we talk about whether or not they're involved in their community or not involved and whether or not they should be involved more or less, but it, a lot of it comes down to the building into the finances. Um, And there is something to be said for having good sound financial um, systems in your church and making sure that you are sustainable, that you're not constantly going into debt or whatever. But the biblical definition of a church is wherever two or more are gathered in God's name, God is there with them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, The ecclesia is just the gathering, right? Um, In in Acts 2, we hear about the first Christian community. We have Pentecost, which we actually just recently celebrated. And we have, uh, Peter gives the Sermon of a Lifetime. And 3,000 people are converted. All these people from diverse backgrounds are all converted, and they all start a church. And what's interesting about that is that there's no building. They eat in each other's homes. They sell all their property and share everything um, in common so that everybody has enough. 
Is everybody 100% equal? Probably not, but that nobody falls through the cracks, right? There's a safety net that catches everyone and keeps everyone at a sustainable level. Um, and then they gather together to worship and, and you know, learn and, and, and follow the, the apostles' teachings. And that's a very different model than what we often see um, that came out of the 60s and the 70s when American churches kind of were at their heyday. And they were at their heyday for, for several reasons, um, the main one being that there was a population boom, right? There was a um, there was a, a baby boomer boom, and so everybody had tons of kids, and uh, those filled our, our preschools. And I, I remember talking to a, a minister in Hawaii who was in decline. Um, I may have shared this with you. Stop me if I have. Um, but they were they were in decline, and uh, this minister had come in and. They wanted him to turn the church around, and they were very upset that he had not brought it back to where it had been in its 60s. And they were making a lot of references to the old minister that grew the Sunday school and that grew the youth group and that grew the adult ministries and that filled the pews again and again and again. And he kept being compared over and over again. They'd make these negative references, and he got so frustrated, he called the old minister and said, all right, how did you do it? How did you, what was your secret for bringing all of these people in to the point that you had to build a whole separate education wing for the Sunday school and the youth group and that you had to, you know, branch out to two and three services on Sundays from one? What was your secret? And the minister said, what? There was no secret. The people just showed up and I was trying to keep up because everyone was having kids. Right. The people just showed up. He didn't have any special outreach technique. The people were just there. And then you know, birth control became commonly available and people started having smaller families. So by definition, instead of having 10 kids, people were having two kids, churches were going to decline. And, and that's really important. That's to be taken into account long before we get to the scandals and everything that, that put people off um, or the pandemic that drove people away. And so what churches often find now is they are looking at their finances every year and it is a huge source of contention and worry for them. They you know, every year you have your annual meeting with your congregation and everybody fights over what we have to cut from the budget. And it gets to a certain point where they say, we've trimmed all the fat we can. The building requires too much maintenance. The pastor's salary is more than the income that we're bringing in. I guess we're not viable anymore, um, which is not exactly true. They may not be financially viable, um, but that doesn't mean that the church isn't still viable because if the church is about spreading the good news and ministering to the widow and the orphan, you don't have to have a building to do that. And I, I don't want to shock or horrify listeners if you have ordained clergy out there, but you, you don't have to have um, a full-time pastor either. Um, you know, Paul was a tent maker. And I do believe that a full-time pastor can put more into the, into the church, into church growth. They, they really, if they don't have to worry about Things like their income, their bills, um, their health insurance, it makes it a lot easier to devote your whole life to ministry because sometimes that's what it requires. Um, but but you don't necessarily have to have the big building with the stained glass and the roof that's constantly requiring repairs and a gardener and, and all this kind of stuff. So um, going back to the home model, I think, is where this country is headed, where you have churches in homes, house churches. And I think also there's a lot of clergy um, that have gone into churches um, that said they wanted to grow but really didn't. Unhealthy churches, and they got a little bit fried from that. But they really, the reason why they got fried was because they had a growth mindset and a growth model, and the churches really didn't respond well to that. 
So I think that right now there's a whole bunch of churches that are about to be empty and there's a whole bunch of ministers that would really love to just do pure ministry from the ground up where they don't have to fight existing structures. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out now how they can merge with that. But for churches that are facing whether or not they can close, they have to close. Um, I think that what they need to do is reevaluate what they want to do and what they want to be. And if they can figure out what they want to be and focus on the basics, the financial viability will sort itself out. Because if you can focus on, I, I talk about the five basics, right? Are you getting newcomers and are you responding in such a way that they keep coming back? If not, change that. You can learn that skill. Are you reaching out into the community? Does every single person in your congregation know how to invite people to church and into the existing ministries? Um, if not, fix that. You, that's a skill that you can learn. Um, and if you, you know, are you learning how to ask for money effectively? Uh, are you discipling your youth? Even if you only have two youth, that's two future leaders. If you disciple them properly, they will be there for you in the future. And are you learning how to get out of the way and let God sort it out? We, we, when money gets tight, we tend to worry and try to fix it and obsess about it ourselves instead of getting out of the way and letting God solve the problem. But all of those five skills, none of them require an expensive building. But they can make amazing differences if you learn how to do them. And, and I've had pushback on this. I've had people say, no, you don't understand what it's like to see a church in decline. You don't really know how hard it is to make that decision. And actually, I do. I've seen churches that were in decline that were down to their last 30 members, their last 15 members. And we were still able to turn it around um, because we focused on those basics um, and their budget went up and their you know, morale went up and their attendance went up and their membership went up. Um, but we had to focus on what we wanted to do and what we wanted to be. Um, and if we wanted to be financially solvent, we were never going to make it. If we wanted to be a force for good, a vessel for God in the community, that's when we started seeing real positive changes. Um, it wasn't easy. Um, oftentimes, by the time churches get that small, there's probably a couple troublemakers in the congregation that like to rule the roost and make everybody's lives miserable, especially the pastors. And that can be really demoralizing for the congregation and for the pastor. And so sometimes you have to take some pretty bold moves um, to be able to write those imbalances so that everybody can move forward. Um, and some churches, they may have to give up their building. They may have to say, you know what? We want to be a force for a positive ministry in the, congreg in the community. But right now our building is so old and requires so much maintenance um, that we don't have the manpower or the money for that it, it takes too much of our focus. We need to let that go so that we can focus on what we want to focus on. Um, and that's not an easy decision because buildings are our legacy. They are our memories, right? That's where we baptized our children. That's where we said our, our vows to our spouse. That's where we buried our grandparents, right? That's where we had our, our, our confirmations. And so to let the building go is really hard. That's where, you know, everybody can identify something that their family donated that is still hanging on the wall of that church. And to say that's not important anymore, that's not our focus, can be really painful. Um, but I've never heard of a, of a congregation that really regretted that decision. When they sell their building and go 100% mission, um, they usually end up having a blast because they don't have to fight about money anymore. They get to, they get to have the fun of um, giving and being benefactors. 
and seeing what what they can make grow in the community. And they get all the accolades and the kudos for that, which isn't something we should expect, but it sure is nice when we get it. It's a lot more positive and fun and fulfilling to have those kinds of conversations than to argue again over whether or not we need to get a cheaper photocopier or or not give the gardener a raise again this year when when we know he's got three kids. It's it's a lot, it just changes the focus of the congregation. Um, And honestly, when we start asking ourselves, are there two or more gathered in God's name that want to go forward? Then the answer is yes, the church is viable. If we're asking whether or not our income is enough to support a full-time pastor, a full staff and building maintenance, the answer will usually be no, but that's the wrong question to ask. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, I, um, I do want to get to the viability question, but yeah. one of the things I think, and, and I remember those five, um, mm-hmm. not rules, but the five th- kind of five, thing, skills. five skills that you had, it seems like the hardest one would have to be um, the final one, mm-hmm. getting out of the way and letting God work. Right. Um, because I, th- I think it's just, I guess, speaking as a pastor, that can be very hard to feel like you're responsible for everything. And, but I think that that can also be a problem for anyone in a church because we feel it's about us. Um, what do you tell congregations that, how, how to help them to let go of that, let go of that fear? Well, letting go is tied directly to humility. Um, and it's a practice. It's a spiritual practice. And, and I stress the word practice. It's not a spiritual, I've already mastered this and never have to worry about it again. Mm-hmm. It's a spiritual practice because there's always more to learn. And um, there's a couple different exercises that I recommend and that I have used when I find myself um, recognizing, understanding that there's a problem and I'm trying to force it. Some of them are a little softer touch and some of them are a little harder touch. Um, Let's start with the harder touch. We'll just get that out of the way. And um, when I see a church that's fighting and that's, it's frustrated and it keeps trying to force solutions and they want to bring in an expert. So the expert, you know, often me that they bring in, they say, you know, would you set everybody else straight and tell them that I'm right. That's really, you know, like a marriage counselor, right? I'm here, I'm paying you good money. So you can tell the other person wrong. Um, and, and what I what I start to ask is, okay, well, let me start by making sure I can identify who's in charge here, who's in charge of this church, right? And that's when the arguments start and who should be in charge and who shouldn't be in charge. And that's when I, I have to give them a real kick in the pants. And I say, well, you're all, you're all wrong. Jesus Christ is the head of the church and none of you are Jesus Christ, right? And we have to get straight back to humility. And that usually catches people's attention. It doesn't necessarily make me friends. But as as a person coming in from the outside, I can often get away with that in a way that the pastor cannot. If the pastor said that to their congregation, they would probably be run out on a rail. But as a person coming in from the outside, I can say, I think that maybe you guys are needing to trust God a little bit more. And that usually gets their attention. Um, Another tool that I use, and I advocate this constantly um, because I use it myself and and I know that it works is to say a prayer. I think we went over this last time to say the prayer where you turn the entire church over to God and you recognize this is God's church, you know, and we can say that right now, loving God, gracious God, all knowing God, 
This is your church. And you can insert an adjective there if you want to. This is your big, stupid, frustrating, aggravating, underwater, upside down mortgage church with your aggravating congregation in it, your congregation. And I'm, I'm turning it over to you. Um, you fix it. You heal it. You figure out the budget. You figure out the ministry. You figure out the youth. Because it's too big for me. I cannot do it all by myself. And you, you fix it. And if there's something you want me to do, you let me know and make it really, really clear so that I don't miss it. Amen. And then I have to, and then go do something else. And usually within 24, the most 48 hours, something shifts that I have no control over. And I see a new possibility or someone, someone who is the most stubborn person suddenly comes around and something shifts. But I have to literally say, I'm turning it over to you and I'm walking away. Because the reality is nobody can save a church. Nobody can, no one person can save a church. Only God can save a church. Um, and so, so that's another one. And then the other one is just on a regular basis with the congregation to do St. Ignatius's prayer of examine. Um, you, you can look that up online and they'll walk you through it. But in general, what you do is you just very calmly take five minutes each day to go back over the 20, past 24 hours. And for each kind of, you know, morning, midday, early evening, nighttime, middle of the night, you know, I break it into segments. You say, where were you? What were you doing? Who were you with? And where was God? And you look for those little emergences, right? You look for those little flickerings of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you realize God's trying to send you a message. And you hear that, you know, when you hear the same thing three or four times from different areas, and you realize that there's a new ministry calling you. But sometimes when you go over those past 24 hours, you start to realize God's trying to get your attention and you're not getting it. You're mm. not paying attention. You're negating it. And maybe you need to get out of the way. And that can be very humbling. And it's easier if you do it in a group so everyone can talk about it. But I talk about this with great confidence because I come from the mystical tradition. You know, people come from different traditions. And I realized that very early in my life, I was having holy moments, divine nudges and paying attention to them. And I had a mother who encouraged me and supported that and nurtured me and, and, and taught me how, what to do with that. Okay. Um, but not everybody comes from that tradition. And so for me, it feels very natural and I can tell when I'm not paying attention and I need to start paying attention or when I'm trying to force the solution. Usually that's when I say, what am I going to do? There's only two bad choices, right? There's, there's, there's black and there's white and they're both bad choices and I have to pick one. That's usually when I say, wait a second, those are my, that's my perspective. That means I'm not paying attention to other opportunities that God is opening for us. They're, they have to be there. I'm just not seeing them. It's time for me to get out of the way. But unless you've done that for a long time, it doesn't always come naturally. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, stepping back for a minute to, to churches that are having trouble getting out of their own way, you know, if they believe that having those meetings every single month or every single year and, and focusing on the budget, right, most of the meetings center around looking at a budget and looking at an agenda, stepping back to do discernment can feel very unnatural and it can feel very unproductive. You know, we want to make a decision. We want to have a vote. We want to have an agenda item. We want to we want to have a motion and we want to pass it so that it can carry and then and then we're gonna we're gonna launch a check and put some put some put some money behind this and then we're gonna have a decision or we're gonna fire someone or we're gonna sell a wing of the building. We like to that's how we feel productive because that's what America tells us we have to do. But it can actually be counterproductive 
to rescuing a church that's in dire straits or making good decisions for the for the future of a church to sit back and discern um, and listen for the nudges of the Holy Spirit and turn it over to God can be the exact opposite of what we want to do in a capitalistic society. But in my experience, which is extensive, every single time, the nudges that came after I turned it over to God got us further along faster and with more people than any of the best laid plans, motions, and votes that I could put bring to the table on my own. And I could give you example after example after example of that, but there's no way we could do that in the time we have today. Yeah. But every single time I said, what am I going to do? And usually that's, that's the thing. When you, if I can just give this, this tool, okay. When you look at the situation in your church and you say, we have no good choices, we have to pick choice A or choice B, and they're both awful choices. That should be your first clue that you're not stepping back and listening to God. Hmm. When we think we've got it so clear and that there, there's no room for argument and we've, we've, we've analyzed and we've argued and it's come down to that, that should be your clue that it's time to step back and not do anything for a little bit and start listening to God and actively engaging the discernment process to find a different solution. Because there is a different solution. God can have an infinite number of possibilities. We're just not watching them. They think of like Hagar. Remember Hagar in the Bible and, and Ishmael, right? She was thrown out of the house with an infant out into the wilderness in the desert and there was nothing. And she said, I can eat my, I have two choices. I can either hold my child in my arms and we can die together and I can watch my child die or I can put my child someplace else so that I don't have to listen and cry to himself, cry, to, cry himself to death. These are my two choices, right? Choice A, watch my child die. Choice B, refuse to watch my child die. And then we'll both die. Do we do it together or do we do it apart? Two horrible choices. And she said, I have to pick one. And she picked one. And God said, there is another possibility. You're just not seeing it. And there was a well in front of her the entire time. She just was so busy focusing on these two horrible choices. She didn't realize that there was something there, a third better possibility that was available to her the whole time. She just couldn't see it. Hmm. And it ended up changing her choices. They both survived. She did not have to watch her child die. She did not die. And they went on to be, she went on to raise the, the leader of a great nation. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's very often how churches see themselves. Um, and I hate to say that we learn this in seminary, but we do. I, I remember being in seminary and we were taking occupational leadership, right, or church leadership. And they kept giving us case studies and the case studies were awful. You know, you trim the fat. There's nothing left. You're in a contentious council meeting and you have to trim the budget. Right. Because income isn't meeting expenses. Do you fire your youth director? Do you fire your organist or do you fire your um, assistant pastor that's doing all the pastoral care? Pick one. And everybody would say, well, then then you'd argue, right? Our groups would argue, do we? Well, you know, if there's not enough youth, then you can get rid of the youth pastor or, you know, pastoral care, that maybe the pastor can pick that up, cut the pastoral care person, cut the, and they'd argue and argue and argue. And I was the one in the back going, wait a second, if these are your choices, then something's not right. Because if this church is really meant to go forward, then cutting any one of these will just hasten the process. 
what she should do is go back six months in time <laughs> and recognize that there's better choices you can make back then. And they'd say, like what? I'd say, well, have your youth director spend half of his time on youth and half on outreach. You know, um, have your organist um, organize a youth choir. You know, maybe he only plays two, two hymns on Sunday and, and then the rest the youth do or, or something. You know, and I said, there's all these other possibilities. You're just not seeing them. And if it's gotten to the point that you only see two choices, then something's wrong. That's not a time to pick one. That's a time to recognize that something is very, very wrong with your discernment process. And that <laughs> well, the teacher kept telling me, you're doing the assignment wrong. <laughs> and I'd say, well, this is, this is a false premise um, that never should have gotten to this way, right? And what's really funny is, I, so I refused to do the assignment the way they said, and I'd say, you know, you need to, these are, these are other possibilities that you're just not seeing. Um, you should pray about it. And she says, no, that's not one of the options. I said, well, that's not one of your options, but that's definitely one of God's options. And we went round and round. And um, months later, after we all graduated, I started getting calls from other students that said, we realize now that we're in the situation, what you were trying to say. And we're using some of the suggestions that you made and it's working and we want more. And that's kind of how I started getting my start as a, as a consultant. What um, makes you think that the teacher couldn't see something like prayer as a possibility? Right, right. Because they, I don't know. I don't know. But this is this is what we were trained. We were forced to see, right? See it as a financial problem as opposed to a spiritual problem to see it as a, as a, as a, as a binary choice or perhaps, you know, three-way choice as opposed to an, uh, an infinite number of possibilities. What if you sell your building and then hire six youth directors, you know, like why, why isn't this an option? Um, what if you tell your, you know, if, you, if there's only one person, one kid in the Sunday school, bring them into worship and then have the youth director go out and, and organize a new ministry in the community that has an evangelistic thrust, a new homeless shelter, a new um, food pantry. There's infinite possibilities. We were just forced to ignore all of them and focus on the three that we were given by human means, as opposed to ignore the human means and focus on the ones that God is giving us. Mm. And that's really, it seems so simple when I say it, like, oh, it's so obvious, but it's not obvious because it goes counter to everything that we learn in the society, in seminary, um, in capitalism, Right. If, if, if the going gets tough, the tough get going. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We tighten our belts. We make the tough choices and we live with our consequences. No, that, that, that works great in American society. But what God says is when there's the most horrible, horrible mess that you've created for yourself, God can take all that horrible mess and turn it into something beautiful and elegant. God can pull me up out of the miry bog and set my feet on firm ground and put a new song in my heart. So this kind of leads into the question of viability. And that is a question I think a lot of churches ask about. And, you know, you've actually come up and we've talked about this in, the, in our last interview, what really is the biblical definition of viability? Why is it that our churches can't see that version of viability? I mean, we we are we are used to basically what what considers viability is money in the bank, mm -hmm. and, but that's not necessarily how it has been in the Bible. It hasn't even been that way always in church history. Mm -hmm. Why are we so 
not able to get out of that kind of thinking? Um, I think it's steeped into our culture and it's steeped into our um, psyche. Uh, part of it is uh, very Western thinking. It's very um, American capitalistic thinking, right? And it's also, I mean, just, I'm going to get in trouble on this podcast. I swear I'm going to start getting angry mail from my con- congregations. But um, even the idea that churches have to register for a nonprofit ID number, right? In order to do that, you have to have bylaws, which detail how you're going to organize your finances, which require you to have a board of directors that has a majority that votes on every single decision, right? Um, that by definition is capitalistic, right? It it all comes down to, you know, you have to submit the budget. You have to be only people who are over the age of 18 can vote on budget matters. So you can be, you can be confirmed at 15 and you can vote in congregational meetings, but not on financial matters until you're 18, because you have to be 18 in the United States before you're legally allowed to, to sign a contract, right? So it all comes back down to Um, the way that the American government and American laws look at finances and decision-making, okay? And so if we're looking at viability, we're looking at it through that lens, right? The money, we're looking at about it, do we have enough people to make a vote, okay? And and it comes down to, sometimes if churches are down to 15 people, it can come down to a vote of eight versus seven to decide whether or not something's viable, Um, as opposed to, If, if you could take all that out, right? And, and you, you look at voting, voting is, some people, some people would say vote, voting is just ritualized violence, right? Because of the idea that you have two opposing forces and you could fight about it. You could say, okay, we're all gonna get swords and we're gonna kill each other, right? And whoever has the most people left standing, they win. But we don't wanna have all that bloodshed. So let's just raise our hands and we'll just assume that whoever has the most would have won anyway. So we don't have to kill all those people, right? So if it's 20 to two, we know that if 20 people attacked two people, most likely the two people would die and then there would be 18 to 20 left and they would be the winner. But when we're voting, um, you know, then we just avoid the bloodshed, but the outcome is the same. And so all all of that, none none of that (laughs) appears in the Bible. In the Bible, we talk about where is there a need? There's hungry people, we go feed them. There's people who have diseases, we will, we will nurse them and we will heal them. Um, there's widows that are, are, are so far in debt that they're, they're, they're forced to sell their children to pay off the debt. How can we assist them? There's people that are disheartened and need good, good news. How can, we, how can we inspire them with, with the good news? Um, if you have people that are willing to do that and let God lead, then that's, that's viable. Um, but that's really hard, you know, to close a church. I remember hearing a church, they said um, they wanted to make sure no matter what, they kept $20,000 in the bank. No matter what, they were down to eight people, but they had to keep $20,000 in the bank because they'd heard that it took $20,000 to close a church. No, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot convince them of that. I said, if you've got $20,000 in the bank, you can be doing good ministry in the community that will start to bring new people into your doors and reverse all of this. No, we can't spend that $20,000 on ministry or on the building or on salaries, because if we ever have to close, we're going to have that $20,000 to close, um, to close the church. And, and, and there was no arguing with them because that's what they'd been told. And, and, and oftentimes the reason why it's so hard for people to let this go is it's steeped in our psyche, but it's also reinforced by our denominations because when churches get really, really small, 
oftentimes they reach out to their denominations. And I I think I've talked about this before, but they reach out to their to their diocese or, or or whatever, and they and they reach out to their national office, and the national office starts asking them, well, you know, we, there's 800 churches that are all asking for us for help. We have to prioritize. Can you let us know what your finances are, how many people you have on staff, whether or not your mortgage is underwater, so that we can prioritize our time and only focus on the ones that we think are viable. But that's how they're assessing viability as well, rather than are there people here willing to discern the spirit? Are there two or more gathered in their name that are determined to go forward no matter what? Um, are there, are there active ministries in the community that they could use um, as outreach? Um, th these are questions that I would ask as opposed to, you know, send us your financials and, and can you afford a, a full-time or only a half-time or only a quarter-time pastor? Um, th those are very different questions that I don't think um, are very helpful in the process. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I think has been helpful for me because we are one of those, I do pastor one of those churches that's probably under... 20 members and um, our um, in the disciples of Christ, we have regional ministers and our regional minister came to visit. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the fact that one of the churches that he served um, in West Virginia was one of about 12 people. And what was important to, to him were the, the people's faithfulness, faithfulness to mission um, mm -hmm. and to ministry. Mm -hmm. And I think what he was trying to get to, across to all of us was that the size doesn't matter. It's it's really the faithfulness to God's mission that matters. I kind of right. wish that that were more. The, I want to hear that from more more um, middle judicatory people because you don't hear that as much. Right. You actually hear the other message, mm -hmm. um, but I think that that's a message that really needs to be heard. Yeah, yeah. I think also, um, and, and this can't be discounted. I think I heard, I heard someone, I can't remember, I would love to credit the person, but I, oftentimes when a crisis hits a community or a family, any unresolved issues, any unhealthy patterns will rear their ugly heads, right? We see this at weddings and, and funerals where people who haven't seen them, each other in 50 years will choose that opportunity to get into a fist fight in the parking lot, right? Because you know, or, or because something, because it was never resolved and they never learned healthy patterns. And then you put a stressor on it, like a funeral or a wedding where everybody has to be together and you add alcohol to the mix and all those unhealthy patterns rear their ugly heads. And we're seeing that a lot with churches and the pandemic was a huge stressor. So a lot of churches are asking a question about whether or not they're viable and they're looking at their finances, but they're not asking whether or not they're healthy enough to continue. And that's a very different question. Um, if you see a church with only 12 people, but there's great faithfulness and they are actively ministering in the community, that's wonderful. But if you see a group of 12 people that have been infighting and power mongering and being bigots and, and, and backstabbing and gossiping for the past 50 years, and you put a stress on that church and they suddenly see their finances dip, um, that may not have been a healthy church for a very long time. Mm. And that's where it gets really tricky because, um, you know, as a, as a denominational leader, I don't know if they would get all that information or if they would have those, the tools to be able to help with something like that. Um, if all the people in that church are actively engaged in unhealthy relationship and have been for a long time, they may not be viable. And you wouldn't necessarily want them to be viable because if a bunch of new people came in, they would just get caught up in all that ugly pattern and the healthy people would leave and the unhealthy people would be stuck. And then you just have a really big unhealthy church. <laughs> um, 
but that's very different from a, a very small church that is filled with great faithfulness that love each other very well and practice um, practice community. They just don't know how to do outreach anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One question or one thing that I hear more often than not um, from different people, and it doesn't have to be just one denomination, it's across different ones, is that a congregation is tired. Mm-hmm. And so then, therefore, they have to cease their ministry. Right. I've never understood what that meant. And because oh. tired, I mean, we're all, I guess that we're all tired at some point. It's not like we're all just full of vim and vigor. Mm-hmm. But it seems like almost to saying, well, you know, you've had a, a down day. So then, okay, well, you're done. Um, you know, what's behind when I, when you hear people saying that? Um, well, I'll tell you, um, when, when I've heard congregations say that they're tired, they're talking about a deep bone level weariness. Um, this often occurs, um, in churches where there's an imbalance. I talk about there's, there's three pillars that churches have to have to kind of be able to self-sustain, um, their, um, morale, if you will, and it's the scripture and it's community service and it is uh, spiritual practices, right? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes (laughs) when you see churches that have been very heavily invested in ministry for a long time, if they have sort of ignored scripture and spiritual practices, they can get burnt out and they can feel that burnout. And it's exacerbated as their population ages, if they have trouble letting go and you have the same person that's been running the same food pantry for the past 50 years because they cannot or will not or let anybody else take over. And then there's nobody left to take over at that point, right? Everybody else is left. There's only a dozen people left. Five of them are, are uh, wearing all the hats. And, and then they're tired, right? And they, they're caught in a, in a vicious cycle where they can't let their ministry go because it's too valuable to them. They can't just say, I'm throwing up my hands because then the ministry would die and it's a very valuable ministry to them and to others. But they can't trust anybody else enough to take the ministry on. So they're just getting more and more tired, right? And then they're stuck. Like I, I, I'm ready to throw up my hand. And then usually someone either dies and the whole ministry falls apart or they throw up their hands and they say, clearly um, I have to let this go. If someone if it's if anyone is, is ever going to take it over, I have to just let it go. And they throw their hands up in the air and they walk away because they're so tired, but they haven't taken the time to train anybody to fill those those shoes. And so it falls apart. And so what, what you're seeing is long-term burnout that comes from over-focus on social justice or community ministries without the spiritual discernment and the spiritual practices that nourish us and without the scriptural foundation that informs us why we do this. Um, aging, you know, it's a lot easier to run a food pantry when you're in your 30s than when you're in your 80s, okay, if it's a full-time job, and the unwillingness and inability to let other people help you, right? If there may be lots of people early in your ministry that can help you, and you tell them, no, 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 I've got this, no, you're doing it all wrong, and one way or the other, you isolate yourself, so it's just you doing it, and then you're the only one left that can do it, and there's no one to give it to when you're ready, Um, And so you put all that together and then you combine it with a pandemic and infighting over the budget. You just want to focus on your ministry, but instead you're having to go to these meetings where they're fighting over money and people just get tired. They get worn out. They get burnt out because they feel like they have 
all the responsibility to keep the entire church going, but they don't have the resources or the authority to do it all by themselves. They've got to get the other 15 people that are still there to agree with them. And there's no agreement. People are fighting, right? And when you have, they describe it as a tiredness or a weariness, but anytime you feel like you have 100% of the responsibility for something and zero authority to actually make it happen, you're going to get frustrated. It's like being asked to play a game where you know you're going to lose. So you just don't want to play. Playing it isn't fun anymore. It's not a fun. If you go into a game and they say, okay, we're going to play Monopoly. We're going to give you $5 in one property and somebody else is going to get all the other properties and all the money, but we still have to go through the playing the entire game and you still have to try to win. You're going to say this isn't fun and you're going to get tired more, more quickly. Um, and, and by the end, people say, well, how come you aren't playing anymore? How come you're not having fun? I'm just, I'm just ready to walk away, you say. Um, and that's where churches find themselves. And if, as they're just taking on more and more responsibility um, and trying to keep all of these different ministries going, they just poop out. And rightfully so. And rightfully so. And if they don't realize that the things they're doing, like anytime a new person comes in or a young person comes in, they're giving off a vibe that sends them away then they become demoralized. Like, why can't we get any help? You know, how come nobody wants to say, is there something that's wrong with us that's causing this problem? And then they turn inward. And, and it, it, it's, it's a perfect combination of <laughs> to contribute to burnout. Hmm. And, so it uh, almost sounds like it's going back to that, the number five skill of yeah. to get out of the way. Right, right. And, and these people, they're, they're, there's not anything wrong with them. These are very faithful servants that have spent their lives, right, clothing, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, visiting the prisoner, rescuing the widow and the orphan. They've just been doing it under more and more difficult circumstances as they get older and they don't, they haven't figured out a way to bring in the help that they need that would make it more joyful mm -hmm. and let them know that, that the ministry may continue. Um, maybe not the way they are expecting it to, but it, it will continue. And um, yeah, it just leads, it leads to burnout. And then you you add that to trying to do it under a pandemic circumstances and the whole congregation just says, you know what, this is too much. We, we can't do this anymore. We're walking away. And you see members leaving and people say, Oh, oh you know, they, why didn't they leave? They weren't faithful if they're tired. They really are tired. They're tired of the fighting. They're tired of the struggle. They're tired of the uphill battle. They're tired of trying to keep things afloat without any help, though they may not realize they're probably causing a lot of that problem for themselves. Um, they poop out, hmm. they poop out and they don't, there's also oftentimes in churches, there's no graceful exit. I've, I've tried to work with churches to help them have a graceful exit, right? Where we can say, we're, we're, we've trained your replacement. They're going to follow in your footsteps. You're going to be able to watch from afar. We're still celebrating you. But now's the time to have the official passing of the church with great accolades for you and great bolstering for the new person coming in. And we're going to give you a graceful way to step back. There is none of that. There is only, I'm throwing my hands up and I'm walking away or someone has to rip it away from me in which case I resent it and then I leave mm. um, and having those graceful transitions can make all the difference but if churches don't do that they leave people with no option other than than anger and resentment one way or the other and then the new person if you're walking into a filling the shoes of someone who hates your guts you're not going to do very well right mm -hmm. if you, you feel like you had to rip it away from them or they're angry and, and telling everybody how, how angry they are that they had to drop this on someone's lap um, you're walking into a lose-lose situation. Hmm. Um, kind of getting close to wrapping things up here, um, but this is kind of an interesting thing that actually is kind of starting 
probably in a backwards way, but how would you help churches, especially as we are going back into our churches and kind of coming back to normal in some ways after the pandemic, ways of doing outreach? Because I think that that solidarity is something, I mean, churches that have, have had some issue doing, haven't been able to do for a while, um, even before the pandemic, um, but now um, even more so. Um, and I know you've had some interesting tales we've talked to before when we had before, and I've, I've listened to some on other interviews. What are some ways that churches can learn to kind of get back into their neighborhoods? Um, first of all, look at your existing ministries. If you already have a food pantry or a clothing closet or um, a preschool or something like that, start talking to those folks about what they need. Don't assume that you know what they need. Start asking them what they need and then see if you can help provide that and encourage your congregation to look at the goal. Our goal, they said they need X. So our goal is not to just write them a check. A goal is to ask as many people as possible to help us fill this need. Do you know anybody that could help us fill this need and encourage them to start inviting other people to participate in that ministry? Maybe 10 people will donate a, a, a coat to the, to the foster kids perhaps, um, and then walk away. But, but two of them will say, oh, I didn't realize you had a Bible study too. Can I come to that? I didn't realize you had worship services too. I didn't realize this was run through a church. Can I, can I join the choir? Right. And then you, you keep fostering that. Um, so start with your existing ministries, but teach people how to invite folks to them. Um, another thing is to uh, ask your newcomers and your existing folks, but especially your newcomers, what brings you the greatest joy? Because usually what brings them their greatest joy translates directly into ministry, either one that you already have and that'll infuse it with new life if you can get them involved or a new ministry. Um, I heard of a church, <laughs> this was really actually, before I wrote my first book, um, I consulted with the church and was teaching them how to do outreach with newcomers, how to respond to the newcomers and follow up with them. And she said, we were down to 12 people. I heard this years later. She, she said, we were down to 12 people. And, you know, I came in and they said, they took a lot from what I said, but the number one thing they took was ask you newcomers, what brings you the greatest joy? And every single one of their newcomers, when they told them what brings them the greatest joy, it turned into a new outreach ministry. Right. And part of that is, asking them what brings them the greatest joy, but also recognizing that if they tell you their greatest joy, like one of them, I guess, was making tchotchkes. They love making mugs and stuff with the church logo on it that they started giving it. Someone just really loved doing this. That's the Holy Spirit starting to emerge and, and, and you gotta pay attention to that, right? Um, I once had to ask the newcomer, what brings you the greatest joy? She says, I love teaching yoga classes to older adults. Guess what? Boom, new ministry. Um, and people started coming in. And so that, that's a really good way to do it if you have newcomers. And if you are at the point where you have zero newcomers and zero ministries, um, and there are some churches that are in that, in that boat, then I encourage you to do a walking meditation around your neighborhood. So <laughs> a walking meditation means take people in your congregation, everybody, anybody who will, who will do it. <clears throat> and if you need to do it like right before right after church when everybody's already there take them take all ages even if you only have one youth take that youth and take the 80 year olds too and you say a prayer before you go god we're going to walk around your community your church is going to walk around your community your neighborhood so that we can meet your neighbors 
We ask that you open our eyes to see everything we need to see, open our ears to hear everything we need to hear, and open our minds and our hearts to everything that you would have us understand. And then walk. Don't say anything. This is not a time for chatting or taking pictures or taking selfies or whatever. We're not stopping to get an ice cream. We're walking and we're paying attention and opening all of our senses to see what we need to see. Do that for like 45 minutes and then come back to the church, say a prayer to thank God for, for opening your eyes and then ask yourselves, where did you see God? What did you notice? Where did you hear God trying to get your attention? You will be amazed at what comes out of that. Hmm. Because every, and I can't say, I promise you, you'll get this out of the other ministry. Because every community is different. Every neighborhood is different. But you will be amazed at what you discover as opportunities appearing before your very eyes if you ask God to show them to you. And, and then you got to keep nurturing. You be very careful that people say, oh, no, that's stupid. We could never do that. I, I, I didn't see that. Say, yes, what should we do next? What should we, what, what do you, what scripture does this remind you of? What, what do you think we should, that would be the next right step? Should we go back and look again? Who, who would be interested in helping us with that? And keep asking the, how would we make this turn into something bigger questions? And keep saying yes to them. You know, who else is working on this that we could partner with? Who else would be floored by this? How does this remind you of something in scripture? What did they do in that situation? And, and you will you will find outreach opportunities present themselves to you. It may be someone comes up and asks you what you're doing and you can ask them what they're doing. And then all of a sudden a partnership is formed. But I've never had, I've never done a walking meditation and not come back with a really solid um, premise for ministry that, wow. that could be fanned. Yeah, oh. for, for churches that really, if they see we're so disconnected from our neighborhood, we'll get out there and walk around in it. It costs nothing. And listen to your youth. Your elders may say that they notice something. Your 15-year-olds will notice something very different from your 80-year-olds. And your six-year-olds will notice something completely different from your 40-year-olds. Listen to all of them. And if two people notice the same thing, say, why don't you two get together? Even if there's a huge age difference. A 70-year-old and a 15-year-old both noticing the same thing, that's a sign. Ask them if what they would like to do about it. And you may find yourself in the midst of a very thriving intergenerational ministry. I've, I've never had that fail. Okay. Okay. And let me know how it goes. You can always reach me at Pastor Tracy at howtogrowmychurch.com. And I love hearing stories of churches that had an emerging ministry because they did walking meditation or St. Ignatius Prayer of Examine um, or, or asking their newcomers, what brings you the greatest joy? I love it. I love it. It, 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 it uh, always um, fills me with joy. And if there's something that I can do to help you take that next step, when you start to have those little inklings and those little nudges, or those little, those moments where you notice something, I would love to help walk you through that. You can call me or, or email me anytime. All right. Well, it's always been a joy to talk to you because I think um, for a lot of churches, it's kind of this question of what, what are we going to do? And mm -hmm what I think is helpful is that you help us help remind us it's not impossible. Um, it's not impossible. And that it's actually a lot of the answers are right in front of us. Yeah, I they are. That's, and that's incredibly helpful. 
Yeah, and if you want um, more ideas, I gave you some snapshots of what to do for outreach, but I do have a new book that came out this year called, called Unstoppable Outreach by Reverend Tracy Barnell, and that breaks down um, four key strategies for how to start from scratch to build a thriving outreach ministry, and it breaks it down step by step, minute by minute, one, one little step after the other to, to get your church um, thriving again. And so I encourage you to check that out as well. You'll find a lot of what I talked about in there, but also a lot more. Okay. We'll definitely put it in the show notes. So okay. thank you again, Tracy. It has been a joy um, and also always hopeful to talk to you. Um, I think it gives, gives the church some hope. Well, it's been a pleasure, Dennis. I, I, I could talk about helping churches grow all day long. And so thank you for giving me the opportunity. And um, do let me know how it goes with your church. And anybody that's listening, please let me know how it's going with your church. I am always love hearing from, from listeners and readers. All right. Well, thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Um, as I said earlier, um, you um, should listen to the February episode with Tracy. Um, just it helps to give a good context of what we talked about today. Um, please consider leaving a rating or review of this podcast because when you do that, that allows for all of those magical algorithms uh, to make it um, easier for people to find the podcast. And um, think that this is a podcast that people would want to hear. So uh, feel free that that there is a link in the show notes that you can use that will really make um, leaving a good rating or review very easy. So that is it for this episode of Enroute, the podcast that is at the intersection of Church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Thank you again so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and we will see you very soon with new episodes. Take care.